We'll hear argument now, number 96-188, the General Electric Company versus Robert K. Joyner. Mr. Cooney. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. This case arises out of a holding by the Court of Appeals that a particularly stringent standard of review and not abuse of discretion or manifest error should govern appellate review of district court decisions excluding expert testimony under Rule 702 and this Court's Daubert opinion. The factors that this Court has considered in its recent standard of review decisions all point to abuse of discretion as the appropriate standard here. The broad discretion given to trial courts under Federal Rules of Evidence 104A and 702, the consistent practice before the adoption of the Federal Rules of deferential appellate review of decisions admitting expert testimony, and the clear functional advantages of the trial courts in making these intensely fact-bound determinations. Indeed, the conclusion that abuse of discretion is the appropriate standard for review of 702 decisions has been reached by no less than 10 courts of appeals. Notwithstanding all these considerations, the Court below embraced what it called particularly stringent review for decisions excluding but not admitting expert testimony, citing as authority its reading of this Court's Daubert opinion and the Third Circuit's opinion in Paoli, which had called for a, quote, hard look at exclusions of expert testimony that result in summary judgment. In so doing, the Court below articulated an expressly one-sided standard of review whose precise scope and meaning are not clear and whose likely and perhaps intended effect seems to be to discourage the exercise of the discretion inherent in the gatekeeping function this Court outlined in Daubert. Mr. Cuny, uh, even if you're correct that the abuse of discretion is the standard of review, uh, the respondents uh, tell us that we still would have to affirm under an abuse of discretion standard, that it doesn't make any difference in this case. Are you going to address that argument? Uh, yes, Justice O'Connor, I will. I think it makes a difference for a variety of reasons. I think that uh, part of respondents' argument, as I understand it, is that the Court was merely ruling on a matter of law and never had occasion to apply its novel standard of review. I think if one looks at the text of the opinion of the Court below, particularly at 10A and 11A of the, of the appendix to our cert petition, and takes a look at the section that deals with the reliability of expert testimony, uh, what one sees is the Court really... 10A and 11A yes, of the, the petition? petition to the, the, the appendix to the cert petition. That's where we uh, attach the opinion of the Court below. Mm-hmm. And the section really begins at the bottom of 10. Mm-hmm. Um, what one sees in the Court of Appeals opinion is nothing that looks like abuse of discretion review. Rather, the Court simply proceeds on its own to undertake its analysis, indeed to declare in the first paragraph that the methods and procedures used by these experts were in fact reliable. Uh, the Court then proceeds to basically disagree with what the District Court had done with respect to animal studies and epidemiological data but never to declare or find that the court abused its discretion in making the decisions that it had made. When, when you say abuse of discretion, as opposed to perhaps de novo review, Mr. Green, I take it that means that uh, a properly acting district court might have reached uh, different, different conclusions on the same evidence, and both would be affirmed on appeal. Mr. Chief Justice, I believe that could happen, although I don't believe that could have happened in this case. 
I think on the record here, uh, there, there, would have, there should have been only one possible ruling by the district court. But as a general matter, it is absolutely correct that abuse of discretion suggests a range of decisions that district courts could reach. And I suppose if you say it's de novo review on an evidentiary point, uh, there would be a lot more reversals in courts of appeals, not just in any one kind of case, but across the board. I, I believe that's the intention of those who articulated this standard. In fact, was to invite greater appellate reversal of district court decisions on these evidentiary points. I think in particular, if you look at Judge Becker's explanation in the Paoli case of why he embraced this hard look, he expresses the concern that district judges are going to get it wrong and really calls for the necessity of greater Mm. appellate intervention for this with respect to this gatekeeping function. Mr. Kinney, the the Court of Appeals, the nub of of one of the Court of Appeals' points was that the District Court had focused on the soundness of the results reached by the various studies uh, in question rather than the methodology and the general acceptance of that methodology. If, and you may want to comment on whether this is so or not, but if the District Court did not make it clear from its own exposition whether it was focusing on results rather than methodology, if there is an ambiguity there, would you agree that the Court of Appeals may resolve that ambiguity in, in effect, any reasonable way, and that the resolution of that ambiguity in deciding whether the, the lower court opinion should be read as focusing on result or on method uh, is, is something that we should accept uh, so long as either resolution was, was reasonable? That itself would not be subject to an abuse of discretion standard, uh, would it? Justice Souter, I don't believe this Court is obliged to accept the Court of Appeals' interpretation of what the District Court was doing. In response to the first part of your question... Though, of course, we wouldn't have taken the case just to review that. What what Courts of Appeals often do in in situations where there is abuse of discretion review, and they find the record does not provide what the Court of Appeals believes is an adequate explanation of how the district judge exercised his or her discretion, then a remand for a better explanation from the trial court is often done. Because there 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 are two inadequacies that might be in question. One inadequacy might be the court of a, the district court didn't make it clear which prong, as it were, it was focusing on. And the second inadequacy might be uh, that assuming it focused on the correct prong, the methodological one, uh, it, it simply did not do an adequate job of justifying its, its position. And, and you're saying, I guess, uh, that there should be an abuse of discretion standard when the Court of Appeals reviews each of those two different kinds of questions? Yes, that's correct. That's correct. I think in a a number of cases what this Court has said is that abuse of discretion as the standard of review really allows the appellate court full reign to do whatever is necessary. It can always correct errors of law under an abuse of discretion, and it provides the appropriate deference. Mr. Cuny, the the, uh, Eleventh Circuit said that the standard of review it was applying was abuse of discretion. And then it went on, this is on page 4A of your uh, appendix, a district court's ruling on the admissibility of evidence is reviewed for abuse of discretion. And then it gave two reasons for a heightened abuse of discretion. And one of them was the showstopper argument that this is summary judgment, that you're out of court. This is not just that you you missed this piece of evidence, but you're out of court. Now, isn't that 
just across the board so that courts will look more closely at a ruling that puts a plaintiff out of court than one that, um, that leads to summary judgment than one that is merely a question of uh, does a particular piece of evidence come in or out? I think courts of appeals inevitably make judgments about how much of their time and attention to give to any particular question. I think the problem here, though, is that by suggesting, by using language that suggests, in fact, some new standard, the Eleventh Circuit is suggesting really a different task for appellate courts. It, on the one hand, does embrace, as you pointed out, abuse of discretion, but then proceeds to say we really need to do more than that. But isn't it true, uh, leaving, leaving the field of expert testimony as a general rule, that a court will look more closely, a court of appeals, at a district court ruling that ends a case than one that merely uh, means that a particular piece of evidence won't come in. I, I think the courts of appeals have not allowed that to lead to an altered standard of review. I think there are a variety of evidentiary decisions that I can. thought that in general, when you're faced with a summary judgment motion, the court, both the district court and the court of appeals, look at it from the vantage point most favorable to the opponent of the motion. The summary judgment motion is reviewed de novo. There's no question about that. But when there are subsidiary evidentiary rulings that precede summary judgment, those without regard to what rule of evidence may be implicated are reviewed for abuse of discretion. Then once the summary judgment record is established, then there's de novo review by the Court of Appeals of whether summary judgment was was appropriate. And all disputed issues of fact are taken in favor uh, of, of, of the moving party. Once you're beyond, yes, Justice Kennedy, once you're beyond the evidentiary issue and to the summary judgment point, then there's de novo review. With yes, the, the moving party in the Court of Appeals, yeah. Uh, but while you have the, the appendix, uh, Andy, could you look at Judge Birch's decision? It's at page 16A. And he has uh, the first three or four sentences. He says, the role of the trial court following Daubert is to ensure that the conclusions reached by the scientific experts have some minimal level of reliability and probative value. I take it you have no argument with that. Uh, Correct. And you, uh, then, then he says, this determination is accomplished by establishing that the predicate principles and methodology relied upon by the experts are valid and that they can be applied to the facts at issue. It seems to me that that is also in accord with your position. Yes. Then he says the sufficiency of the evidence and the weight of the evidence, however, are beyond the scope of the Daubert analysis. Um, is, is he mixing apples and oranges there, or, or, or is he correct in that statement as, as well? Uh, and it, it was his concern, I, I think, that this was a sufficiency problem, I assume, because that's, that's why he concurred. That's how I would read that, Your Honor, that, that, that he thought that perhaps what the district court had done was to slide from admissibility into sufficiency without clearly articulating. But, but there's an element of sufficiency in the calculus that you want the district judge to uh, apply, is there not? Well, you could use the word sufficiency if you want to, but I believe what this Court said is that there are minimum thresholds of reliability and relevance that have to be met before the testimony is admissible. Uh, and, but, and I, so we would say that weight and sufficiency, as used here, are just terms of art, and in the sense that we usually use them, uh, they do not apply to the district judge's determination? That's how I read Judge Birch's, Birch's concurrence, that he was recognizing two separate issues and perhaps suggesting that there had been some confusion between the two. Well, certainly after, after Daubert, uh, the trial judge, the district court, is given uh, authority to exclude 
evidence on the basis that it doesn't comply with the standards laid down in Dobera, I guess. Correct. Correct. And the Court still has the ability, even if it determines that the evidence is admissible, to find it insufficient to avoid summary judgment. And that, I believe, is part of what this Court pointed out in Daubert, was that the admissibility determination was not necessarily the end of the case. Let's, let's assume that, uh, that perfectly reliable scientific methodology was used, but that the issue is whether, given that methodology, what has been proven is sufficiently relevant to this case. That is, whether it uh, comes close enough to establishing evidence of what the plaintiff uh, wants to prove. Um, the district court could simply exclude that evidence, I suppose, if he thinks it isn't relevant enough. I believe that's correct. Under in, which the, case under the you say, in which case you say he'd be reviewed on an abusive discretion stand. Correct. He could, on the other hand, let it in and, and simply uh, grant uh, summary judgment to the uh, defendant on the ground that not sufficiently relevant evidence has been produced to uh, overcome the initial burden that the plaintiff has. And that decision would not be refuted on an abusive discretion standard. That's correct. But it's the same, it's the same question. I, I believe it's not the same question. I believe the standards that you have set, this Court has set forth under Rule 702 for determining admissibility are not identical to the standards that govern a sufficiency determination. Well, relevance has, has I don't see how that can be. Whether, whether what has been medically proven is relevant enough goes to both the, 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 the Darbert uh, uh, determination and to the uh, summary judgment determination. I would, I would agree that it's pertinent to both, but I don't think it's clearly the case that the standard that a district court ought to use in making those decisions, either decision, is the same. I believe that the fit prong under Daubert does come very close conceptually to what sufficiency of the evidence seems to be about. Certainly would concede that. And I, I believe that's, in effect, that what you're yeah, pointing that, out. That's what troubles me about, about this case. It seems to me uh, things are getting unduly complicated when, when we have what is virtually the same determination subject to two different standards of review, depending upon which rubric the uh, district court chooses to use. I think that's really no different here than in any other area that where an evidentiary ruling leads to summary judgment. In, inevitably, you're left with, if the district court decides the evidentiary ruling adverse to the plaintiff. And then the summary judgment decision really is nothing other than that the cupboard is bare because there is no admissible evidence. Then there is de novo review of summary judgment, and that admittedly is not a very intensive exercise. But I think that's not a problem unique to the admissibility of expert testimony. Is, is it fairly common in, in cases now uh, to have these evidentiary uh, questions of admissibility of expert testimony thrashed out in limine or be before the case goes to trial and then have a motion for summary judgment based on the court's decision? Absolutely. The courts have, de have really developed a variety of procedural vehicles. In some circuits, they virtually require an evidentiary hearing. In other cases, it's simply done by motion. But increasingly, judges are resolving these issues in advance of trial 
both to decide whether summary judgment is appropriate and so that before the trial unfolds, the parties will know what evidence is going to be before the fact finder and what evidence is not. In that process, do they consider conflicting expert testimony so the defense experts uh, advise the judge of why they think the methodology is flawed? The the procedure typically involves a motion in limine to exclude and a motion for summary judgment. And in the course of that motion in limine to exclude, the party seeking the exclusion will put on whatever contrary evidence it has that it believes identifies the methodological flaws. The respondent said that uh, the methodology that their experts used and that was rejected was the same methodology that your experts used. Is, is the answer to that 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 may be true, but the methodology led your experts to conclude that there was no causal link? Or, I mean, I'm not quite sure how to respond to that. Justice Kennedy, I think the answer to that is no. The methodology used was not the same. There was testimony in the record before the district court from the defense experts about appropriate methodology with respect to interpretation of animal studies, about a recognized set of criteria that can be applied to a variety of epidemiological data to assess causation. And there is no overlap with respect to that methodology between the methodology that defendants put forward and the methodology of plaintiff's experts. Mr. Chief Justice, I'd like to reserve any remaining time for rebuttal. Very well, Mr. Cuny. Uh, Mr. Wallace. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. The gatekeeper role that this Court prescribed in Daubert, as we understand it and as the terms of Rule 702 suggest, applies to the testimony of the expert and whether that testimony should be allowed, not just to the question of what studies the uh, expert can advert to, and usually these are studies done by others, not by himself, but what he can say about those studies. Part of the scientific methodology is scientific reasoning. What uh, uh, conclusions uh, are scientifically uh, can be said to follow, or at least arguably to follow, from the premises one has. Many scientists could be found who could describe published studies conducted by others, but the experts are selected by the parties on the basis of what's important in the case, what inferences they're willing to draw from the published studies, and how they're willing to relate those inferences to the case. And what, what counts in these cases in the gatekeeping function is to separate what is scientific reasoning and worthy of consideration under Rule 702 from what uh, is not supported by scientific reasoning in relating published studies uh, to the issues in the case and therefore should not be submitted to the jury. That is a, a question based on what is proper scientific reasoning rather than quite the same legal question that uh, Justice Scalia was adverting to in what is sufficient evidence uh, to support a judgment. Uh, um, And 
This, as uh, respondents concede, is a very contextual, fact-intensive question. We point out in footnote 8 on page 18 of our brief that there are uh, legal situations in which the question before the court is whether there is a risk to public health or a danger to the environment, including a danger to animal habitats, which would make certain studies um, relevant in inferences that can be drawn through scientific reasoning to the ultimate issue in the case. Quite a different ultimate issue from what's involved here, which is not preventing conduct that may be harmful in a general sense, but uh, trying to determine whether it is more probable than not that a particular person's injury was caused. Mr. By Wallace, when you say more probable than not, then immediately and we, ha- we, ha- we do have a Seventh Amendment. We do have questions of fact that go to a jury. So this gatekeeping function has to be on the law side. Otherwise, it trenches on the Seventh Amendment. So and now you talk more probable than not. That sounds like a fact territory. Well, I, I, I'm not saying that, that that is the question for the judge to decide in, in uh, determining admissibility. That is the, but that is the, uh, the question that is before uh, the jury, if the case goes to the jury, and therefore in deciding whether there is a sufficient link between the, the uh, foundation, the premises on which the expert is to draw, and the inferences that he is willing to draw from them and, and, and put before the jury, um, one has to keep in mind what it is that uh, scientific reasoning has to relate to. Yes, but and, that and goes to the summary judgment determination and not to the determination of whether it's properly admissible. I assume it is properly admissible if it if it goes even that far, even a little bit, to render to render the conclusion more probable than not. Well, the, the and if uh, it does that, it's admitted. But it, I, I really don't understand your position that that somehow environmental cases are a favored class of cases, and junk science is okay for environmental cases, but not for uh, not for an ordinary uh, tort suit. Well, I mean, if it's good for one, it's good for both. It's <laughs> Well, we're not. Uh, I, I wouldn't consider what I was referring to as junk science. It, it, it is whether there is a sufficient indication that uh, a, a danger to the public health should not be risked. That is quite a different question. A summary judgment question, not the admissibility or inadmissibility question. Well, it, the, but the logical extension of that is that so long as a study can be said to have been published and conducted so far as appears according to a scientific methodology, any study can be admitted in any case as long as you can find a qualified expert who's willing to say that I would draw a conclusion from this study that relates to, this, to the issue before this case. I mean, there, there's, there would be no gatekeeping at all to exclude studies, uh, uh, and, and, and Daubert would be essentially overruled. Uh, the, the, the process of scientific reasoning in drawing inferences from studies and whether there's too great an analytical gap 
between the premises and the conclusions that that expert is going to uh, testify to it has to be part of the gatekeeping if it's to be meaningful. Any other categories of cases besides uh, public health cases and environmental cases? Uh, they're one category, and, and private tort cases are another. No, not at all. But third, it, fourth, it, and fifth categories? It's only part of the context. One could pose a, a hypothetical in a tort case where there had been an epidemiological study that um, uh, provided a basis for linking in a, in a, uh, the cause here to a human injury. And then these very same animal studies uh, could be adverted to in the testimony. One could, uh, the counsel could ask the expert, well, do you know of any other studies relating to this substance? And he can, could re refer to the animal studies and then explain why he thinks the results are consistent with the conclusion that he draws from the epidemiological studies. It might not be very important evidence, but it would be, uh, but he couldn't draw the inference that the district court found not to be supported, I, that these particular animal studies showed something about cause of a, of a disease in humans. I just take your last point was that a particular study might show out of 2.2 million people who die every year, a thousand die of, of cancer caused by chemical X. That's the EPA study. That would be perhaps ground for limiting it. It wouldn't be ground for saying that this person, one of 500,000 to die of cancer, died of chemical X. Is that the point? That, 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 that very well could be the point. Well, it that could thing. not be the point. He is, he is putting the summary judgment question. You are saying this is not the summary judgment question. It is the admissibility question. You would admit that, that evidence in one case, and you would not admit it in the other. Isn't, isn't that what you're saying? And it uh, seems to me the, the evidence is just as solid scientific evidence in both cases. But it isn't cases. helpful to the jury. Yes, it has to be uh, evidence that would assist the jury under the terms of Rule well, 7. Let me, let me ask my uh, question. It, it, with the question that is before them, it's not just a question of whether it's scientific. Supposing the, the scientist test is willing to testify that exposure to PCPs for an hour is that one out of a thousand people will get cancer from that. Uh, is, that would be admissible under your view in the environmental case. Would it be admissible in the causation case? Well, uh, I, I think that's a hard question to answer, that, 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 uh, and, and certainly a much closer question than what was before the district court here, which was testifying about possible effects on humans from animal studies involving higher doses than, than uh, would have been involved in this case. There but, but has if, to be some the, threshold well, where... Is the threshold that there's, there's no, no probability that there's some causal connection or that the probability is, is so, re so remote, one out of 100,000 cases, then it doesn't come in, but one out of 1,000 it does? Is that what you're saying? I would say that that, too, is a contextual question that has to be answered in light of the evidence. We happen to be dealing well, with a case here in which there was strong evidence of other causative factors. 
and if you uh, tried to add in testimony about a particular chemical, you're suggesting if there's no the, evidence in this record that the man smoked or had any family history of cancer, then it might have been admissible. Right, well, certainly a lower threshold would be appropriate there than where you've got a slim chance that the chemical caused it and, and a lot of evidence of other things. Thank and you, Mr. Wallace. Mr. Gottesman. <clears throat> Mr. Chief Justice, may it please the Court. Um, there are certainly some serious disagreements between the parties here, but there are a number of areas of agreement, and I'd like to begin with those because I think they may narrow the focus of the very questions the Court has been asking. Um, first of all, um, I, I do want to make it clear it's only a piece of the Court of Appeals reversal that is here. That is, uh, the plaintiffs contended that the uh, plaintiff was exposed to uh, three chemicals. The Court of Appeals held there's a triable issue of fact on that. Um, that was not an a ruling that turned on the admissibility of scientific evidence. And indeed, as respondents acknowledge at page 20, I'm sorry, petitioners acknowledge at page 20 of their reply brief, um, the district court has not ruled the expert testimony inadmissible with respect to all three chemicals. So I wondered about that. What I read the district court saying was, he said at a point in his opinion, assuming that plaintiff's experts had not made unfounded assumptions about furans and dioxins, that I take it is on the assumption that he thought there were furans and that they thought there were, you know, that there were furans and dioxins. Defendants still persuade the court that plaintiff's expert testimony would not be admissible. Now, he doesn't say some of it. He, does, he says the expert testimony. The experts were going to testify about particular things. He says, assuming I'm wrong, says the judge, about furans and dioxins, still it would not be admissible. I take him to mean what he said. No, I don't think, Your Honor, respectfully, that that is what he meant. What he said was the experts assumed that all three chemicals were present and were, that the plaintiff was exposed to them. Uh, but assuming that I accepted their testimony as testimony about PCB alone, it would not be acceptable. That's I didn't see any, any words. Well, I just, oh, the only words that I found relevant were the words I read to you. Yes. Now, are there some other words there that well, are relevant? Well, let me make clear. The, the um, defendants did not move to deny the experts' testimony on all three substances. Indeed, their very reason for arguing that you can't claim co uh, uh, that, that there is a promotion of cancer by PCB alone is that the studies the experts were relying on included people who were exposed to furans and dioxins. And said they, therefore, if we're right that this plaintiff was not exposed to furans and dioxins, then that testimony is not... I'll go back and look again. I looked through yeah. the record. But I, I asked a motion Honor, for summary judgment, a motion to exclude testimony, some answers to it, and I didn't see all these fine distinctions being well, made in those papers. I think I'll go back you, and read them again. If Your Honor will just look at page 20 of a respond, a petitioner's reply brief, they expressly say the district court did not rule on the admissibility of the testimony with respect to three chemicals. Well, and well, I is tell there you... something to, be, to go to the jury still? Pardon? Well, absolutely, because now the Court of Appeals has found there's no, no, a viable... No, no, if, if the Court of Appeals is reversed, and if the district judge's uh, order is upheld, uh, are there now issues to go to the jury? Yes, indeed. Well, that's what the point that I started out wanting to make. The portion of the Court of Appeals' opinion that said that there is a triable issue, that, the, that Mr. Joyner was exposed to dioxins and furans, is not here. 
Respondent acknowledges that at page 20 of his brief. That's not here because that well, has nothing if, to do if with it. If you can't show causation, why, why go to the jury? I mean, you have to have exposure plus causation. And well, he course. rules that you cannot show causation based on these testimonies. Isn't that the end of the case? But the district court has not ruled that the scientist's testimony is inadmissible if it is assumed that Mr. Joyner was exposed to all three chemicals. The, district, the, district, court, the district court did grant summary judgment. Yes. And so it would have to be some sort of reversal by the Court of Appeals. It would leave something left for the jury. Yes, Your Honor. And wh where is it on page 20 that's of the petitioner's brief that you say is where they agree with your position? On their reply brief, they say, um, this is in the first full paragraph, the Court of Appeals added that it's in its view there was a genuine factual dispute over whether furans and dioxins could have been present in the fluid to which Mr. Joyner was exposed it never reached the question whether opinions of causation by furans or dioxins would be admissible because the district court had not done so. That doesn't strike me as crystal clear, but perhaps in context. It well, let me back up for a minute because this is terribly important to us, obviously. Um, they moved for summary judgment and they made two points. Contrary to the claims of the plaintiffs, Mr. Joyner was not exposed to furans and dioxins. Therefore, they said, he was only exposed to PCBs. And the testimony of plaintiff's experts will, is not admissible on the basis of PCB exposure alone. They never said that if Mr. Joyner was exposed to all three chemicals, that the testimony would not be. But, I mean, normally as a, as a reviewing judge in a court of appeals, I'd look at the summary judgment. I'd look at what the motions were below. I'd look at what they actually argued. So if you want me, I'll go back and do that. I'm just saying when I did it briefly, I didn't notice these fine distinctions being made. Well, Your so Honor. I, and, where, you know, in other words, they're saying, you, you believe if I look those papers again, I'll find that they say, oh, no matter even if we win this in the Court of Appeals, we concede that we still have to go back and have a trial on the furans and dioxins, that they said that in those papers. That the Court of Appeals expressly. I don't know the Court of Appeals. I'm not talking about that. that I'm saying whether or not you're saying now that somehow this case, given the summary judgment, et cetera, they're conceding that they have to go back and have a trial on furans and dioxins. That's correct. And I'll find that in their papers before the Court of Appeals. Yes. Well, I you'll so find far. it in their papers here. And I, I still find that hard to square with the language that I believe Justice Breyer quoted to you, and it's at the top of 58A of the opinion. Yes. It said, defendants still persuade the Court uh, that plaintiff's expert testimony would not be admissible. Can yes. you proceed to the trial without this expert testimony? No. No. You're saying they, they're conceding that it would be admissible in respect to furans and dioxins if there's an issue there, but not. I mean, this is a fine distinction. That's why I looked at the papers, and you're going to tell me now, perhaps you have the citation, where this was all argued before the Court of Appeals on this kind of hypothesis. Isn't it even narrower than that, that the district judge has not yet ruled on whether the testimony would be admissible if the record showed all three criminal companies? That's correct, Your Honor. So we don't know what ruling he might make. Exactly. There is nothing. So they haven't conceded you go to trial. They concede there need to be further proceedings in the district court. Yes. That's when I used to be on the Court of Appeals, if there was this complicated thing, the parties had to point it out. That's why normally I would just take an issue of unadmissibility to be it's inadmissible. Now, if well, there is this distinction made, I want to be sure I focus on it in the Court of Appeals. Well, Your Honor, as they acknowledged, the district court never ruled on the admissibility. Did you Someone ask the summary judgment then? I mean, if, of if course. And, I, and, on that ground? Yes. That, that even assuming that the district court was right uh, about the exclusion 
uh, that summary judgment still should not have been granted? Yes. In other words, you asked the judge this, the district judge, and he didn't make a ruling on it even though he was asked to make a ruling on it. He was not asked to make a ruling because they did not contend it was not admissible. If he, if he, he granted summary judgment, yes. he made a ruling of inadmissibility. That, I would think, would be the end of it normally. I don't hypothesize whether what he would have done on something that nobody asked him to do. That's, well, he was, he did not, she, the district judge, did not answer the question whether the testimony with respect to all three chemicals was admissible. Mr. Gottesman, I think, tell me my understanding is correct. She said this man wasn't exposed to furans and dioxins. Yes. Was exposed to PCB, but not furans and dioxin. And that was her ruling, and that's why she looked at the admission only with respect to PCB. Then on appeal, you got her reversed twice. You got her reversed for saying there wasn't enough evidence of the furan and dioxin. Correct. And then you got her reversed on the admissibility, um, the threshold admissibility question. That's so right. you lost on, before her on the dioxins and furans. Correct. You appealed that, and you prevailed on that. Correct. And that's the piece of this case that isn't before us. That's right? correct, Your Honor. Uh, as is the testimony of the experts that uh, exposure to those chemicals uh, promoted the cancer that Mr. Joyner experienced, a point that the district court had never itself ruled on. But the district court on remand might say, all right, I was wrong about the plaintiff not having been exposed to furans and dioxin. Nonetheless, considering all three chemicals together, I still conclude that the expert testimony should not be admitted. Well, that is a possibility. Of course, the defendants have never s- argued to the district court that it would be inadmissible, assuming all three were there. But if they made such an argument and if the do- district court were willing to entertain a second motion, that would be possible there. But the ruling that is up here is the portion of the Court of Appeals ruling that says even if the plaintiff was only exposed to PCBs, that is, even if the jury ultimately determined yeah, that the plaintiff was, was exposed. Mr. Gosman, getting back to what is really the main point of, of the petition and your response, I guess, if you, if you look again at 4A of the petition, where the district, which has been referred to by my, some of my colleagues, the, the, the Court of Appeals says towards the bottom, uh, because the Federal Rules of Evidence governing expert testimony display a preference for admissibility, we apply a particularly stringent standard of review to the trial judge's exclusion of expert testimony. Uh, do you agree with that statement? Um, not as it is precisely stated. Um, and I want that's part of where I said there is some agreement between the parties that will narrow the issues. We do not contend that there are two different tiers of abusive discretion review. There is one standard of review. It is abusive discretion. We also do not believe that it is a one-way factor whether a court takes a close look at a case. Just as Judge Becker and this Court have said that when evidence in a Daubert-type proceeding is excluded, we ought to take a close look, Judges Higginbottom in the Fifth Circuit, Judge Buckley in the D.C. Circuit, and a third Court as well have said, because these are such important rulings, these rulings inevitably decide the fate of a case when it's a toxic tort case, because expert testimony is crucial to the existence or non-existence of the case. These are not just ordinary rulings. These are really important rulings. They deserve more careful attention. 
And what we argue for is the formulation, not of the sentence as stated by the majority, but actually the sentence as is stated by the dissenting judge in this case, who on this point I'm not sure was disagreeing with the majority. What Judge Smith was saying, and it's on page 18 of the appendix to the cert petition, and I'll quote it because this is all that we contend for as to the appropriate uh, role of appellate courts. In applying a particularly stringent... Whereabouts on the page are you, Mr. Pardon? Whereabouts on the page are you? I'm sorry. This is the last paragraph on page 18A. begins the paragraph. And on this point, we think Judge Smith is really just explaining. He says he's explaining what the standard is that the majority has asserted. In applying a particularly stringent review, we do not change the threshold of review, but conduct a searching review of the record. That is, take a hard look while maintaining the proper standard of review. Well, now, isn't that a certain amount of gobbledygook? Um, I don't think so, Your Honor. I think what it is is saying is there are some cases where we are going to devote more resources to analyzing the claim that a party has brought to us, that there has been an abuse of discretion. But, none, but you think, nonetheless, Judge Smith's view and the majority's view is that perhaps the, the district court could have ruled either way and still be affirmed? That's, to me, what abuse of discretion means. Well, in appropriate cases, that yes. may be true. Not always, certain. But And, indeed, the Court said this is not such a case. And I want to get to that for a moment. But Judge Smith, of course, although you say you agree with the standard of review he espoused, he said he would have uh, affirmed the decision. That's correct. And, obviously, we don't agree with that portion of the dissent. <laughs> um, the phrase hard look, I, I assume, is, is taken from a whole line of D.C. Circuit cases involving uh, review of administrative determinations which are supposed to be made on an arbitrary or capricious basis, equivalent to abuse of discretion, probably. Right. And it was generally agreed among administrative law pr practitioners that a hard look meant not arbitrary and capricious, but, but indeed a different standard. Well, we um, are Almost never won the hard look cases. Okay. We, um, we think that that is, that, that we think this and only this, that this court ought not to tell the appellate courts at this stage of the development of Daubert and its application that you should not look carefully at cases where these things come to you. We think it's important that they do well, look carefully. Well, is this, yeah, you're arguing, arguing for a standard that is somewhat different than the ordinary review of a trial court's evidentiary rulings, aren't you? Well, uh, as, as I mean, a Chief trial Justice. judge has to sit on the bench and make numerous rulings on the admissibility of evidence as a trial proceeds. Indeed. And in the normal case, we apply an abuse of discretion standard to reviewing those judgments and decisions, which have to be made very quickly, and it's a tough deal for the trial judge. And I think... Uh, in general, appellate courts have recognized that difficulty and have tended not to upset those rulings unless uh, it's, it's clearly an abuse of discretion. But you want some more searching review applied to the exclusion of expert testimony. The exclusion or the admission when the admission also means mm -hmm. that a trial will go forward that otherwise right. would not. Right. That well, is, when you say more searching review and you say devote more resources, would it comply with that if the 
uh, judges on the appellate panel simply say, well, I'm really going to go over this record, you know, and I'm going to read it twice, perhaps, <laughs> and then simply apply the abuse of discretion standard? That's all we're contending for, Your Honor. Abuse of discretion with teeth. <laughs> well, I would say with eyes, but yes. <laughs> <laughs> so we, we, we could have hard look cases and licking a promise cases, right? Uh, well, I think I realistically, mean, it's, it's assumed that in other cases, judges just sort of flip through the record, you know, and well, the pages. Your, your Honor, I, Didn't we take a hard look in all cases? Why, why limit a hard look to, uh, to just these cases? It seems well, to me one should be very careful in every case. Well, uh, that we wrote that in our brief, Your Honor, and we said in an ideal world, that's what appellate courts would do, but we as live in an ideal world here. Uh, but as <laughs> an ideal world with limited resources, Your Honor. As Justice O'Connor said, judges make a myriad of decisions every day, and they have to make them on the spot, and understandably, courts of appeals are going to be quite deferential to those rulings. But this kind of a ruling is not made that way. This kind of a ruling is made on an elaborate record. Now, the judge, to be sure, did not hold a hearing here or even receive an argument from the lawyers, but the judge had very extended papers and wrote a full opinion. And this was something which was not just one of those snap decisions that judges have to make. Mr. Gattisman, as you understand the hard look, it works for the defendants and the plaintiffs equally, whether it's admission or exclusion. But that's not the way I read Judge Barquette's opinion. She, cause she relies on the, the uh, presumption in favor of admissibility in, the, uh, in her opinion. Yes, I agree with that, Your Honor. And so we are not defending the notion that it should be limited. To I see. So you don't defend her reason for the hard look. Now, we would put together the, the views of uh, Judge uh, Becker on the Third Circuit and Judge Barquette, which is that when you exclude it in a case like this, it deserves the hard look, and with the views of Judge Higginbottom and Judge Buckley and others, that when you admit it in a case where it makes the whole difference between a trial or not, we should look at it. Oh, well, wait well, just a minute. You do? Uh, uh, a hard look. It, it, it's, your hard look, then, is limited to summary judgment proceedings? It's limited to evidentiary rulings which have a profound impact on the case. The well, what if, what if it, it, it could have a profound impact, I take it, even though supposing that the trial judge excludes important evidentiary testimony. Now, that doesn't result in his granting a judgment for the defendant at the end of the trial, but it has a significant effect on what you can argue to the jury. Does that kind of a ruling deserve a hard look? I would think not. Certainly it is not as strong a case for one as one where the judge says this case is over and it's over now. I'm granting summary judgment because of the ruling that I make. Um, and I also think the fact that Daubert is a new and difficult enterprise for courts suggests some more room for appellate uh, observation of what's happening and, and, and elaboration. And let me that's, try... That's ex I'd just like to follow up on the Chief Justice's question because that's what I wasn't certain about. Are you saying that a decision to exclude evidence or to admit evidence of a certain sort, an appellate court does the same job with it all the time, whether it's plaintiffs or defendants, whether it's admitted or excluded prior to trial or after trial, whether summary judgment is at stake or JNOV is at stake. Are all those to be the same in your mind, or are you saying that it's different depending upon whether the trial would take place or the trial was over? Um, I think that I am saying something that's in between those. That is that appellate courts should be free when they feel a, really, a ruling was really important to the outcome of a case 
to look closely at the claims of the right, parties. So that, but there is not that that you're saying is true. Whether there was a trial or wasn't a right. trial has nothing to do with summary judgment. It's just a fact of judicial mentality, exactly. not a rule of law. What we are articulating is not a legal principle. It is a an observation about the allocation of appellate resources, oh, right. which judges now on five circuits have felt it important to articulate. Oh, well, that's the part I don't know about, because once you articulate it in a rule of evidence or an opinion, it becomes a rule of law. And I don't know how you'd write such a thing into a rule of law. Do um, you have an idea for that? I'm not sure that it should be written as a rule of law. That is, I think these courts of appeal should be allowed to say this and uh, that you should not be offended that they say it. Kind of harmless error. <laughs> harmless error. Uh, not error. Not error. Harmless non-error. Right. Now, what I'd like to do it is... like you want an abuse of discretion standard for our review of Court of Appeals decisions reviewing abuse of discretion at the trial level. Well, let me address, Your Honor, the application in this case. Uh, what it is that the Court of Appeals actually complained about that the district court did, which we believe is a ruling of legal error and that's not affected by that sentence. And the Solicitor General in, in his brief also said that the Court of Appeals believed that it had found a legal error. To understand it, I have to spend one minute setting out what the methodology is that the experts were employing in this case and then how the district court decided the case. The experts were applying a methodology which is well established in the scientific method. It is known as the weight of evidence methodology. That is in areas where science has not arrived at absolute certainty, how do we make probabilistic estimates of whether something is causing or contributing to an injury or not? And there are well-established protocols for this. They were developed initially by scientists at the EPA and were then peer-reviewed by university and industry scientists and ultimately published as the EPA's guidelines. There are similar guidelines for the World Health Organization, also developed by scientists. Uh, and there is a prescribed protocol that one uses in going about a weight of the evidence methodology. If you look at the district court's opinion, and this is what the Court of Appeals said about it, nowhere does the district court acknowledge that the methodology being used here is weight of the evidence methodology. Nowhere does the district court said it's wrong to use that methodology here. Nowhere does the district court said, well, it was right to use that methodology, but you didn't apply it properly here. Instead, all that the district court did was say, bring on your individual pieces of evidence one at a time. I will look at each one under the microscope. I will decide whether you can go to a jury on a claim that this piece of evidence causes uh, or promotes lung cancer in smokers. Um, and if you look, for example, she started with the evidence of animal studies, and she discusses that at pages 58 to 62 in the appendix. And then she says, no, you can't find it from the animal studies, and she sweeps them off the table. We never hear about them again. Then she starts with the epidemiological studies, the human epidemiological studies, at least two of which found statistically significant evidence of an increase of lung cancer from exposure to PCBs. Uh, and others of which found accelerated incidence of lung cancer, even though the sample sizes weren't large enough to find statistical significance. She critiques each of those, pushes it aside. Uh, she ignores entirely other aspects of what the way of evidence methodology requires. Did, did, uh, excuse me, before you go, are, are you saying that if you have five studies 
that do not show a statistically significant difference? You can admit all five, although each one would not be admitted. Is that what the weight of evidence? Yes, and the weight of evidence methodology contemplates that. Statistical significance requires confidence at an extraordinarily high level. It does not correlate with the likelier-than-not burden of proof, which is what the law requires. And so scientists have written extensively. We have a footnote in our brief where we cite. Well, and I take it that you presented all this argument to the district court, uh, the, the weight of the evidence and that yes. sort of thing, that the, the whole equals more than the sum of its parts. Exactly. Exactly. But the district court never acknowledges that that's even what's going on here. The district judge just goes through one after another the individual items of evidence, and then at the end says, the studies simply do not support the expert's position that PCBs more probably than not. All right. It sounds as if he's saying the studies, I mean, I've written things like that myself a lot. You go through seven pieces of evidence, and you say the evidence doesn't support it. Seven means zero, individually zero. or individually or taken together. Well, Indeed, but that's a ruling on the So the question would be, has he abused his discretion in saying Taken together, we, I don't think these studies will help the jury. That's okay. what he says. I don't think they'll help the jury enough to award, to admit them. Okay. Here's the Court of Appeals said two things about that. These were its rulings about how the district court proceeded. And incidentally, the district court ignored much of the evidence that went into the weight of evidence, including, for example, that PCBs are ingested and the place in the body where they locate themselves is the lungs. That is where the lung tissue is where PCPs de deposit themselves, and that other chemicals that are similar to PCBs have been found to have high incidence of lung cancer. The, di the district court ends with this statement that I just read. The Court of Appeals said two things about that. Number one, said the Court of Appeals, you've just made a statement about the sufficiency of the evidence. You have not said that science, the, the scientific methodology is improper. You have not cited anything that suggests that scientists are not allowed to take this body of evidence and get to this conclusion. You've just said that you don't think you can get from this body of evidence <coughs> to this conclusion. And indeed, that is exactly what did happen, because the defendants introduced no scientist who said that the plaintiffs have taken steps that it is impermissible applying the proper scientific method to take. Well, was, the, was this a methodological conclusion or a relevance conclusion? Maybe the district court was saying the methodology is fine for what it purports to do, but it does not provide a sufficient predicate for use in reasoning to a conclusion about cause in humans. Maybe that's what the district court was doing, and if it was doing that, uh, it seems to me, number one, that was not committing any legal error, and number two, it was making a judgment, ultimately, about what the jury could find helpful that should be subject uh, to abuse of discretion review. Would you agree? Um, I think not, Your Honor, and let me suggest why. I think there are two problems with that. If the district court says there is scientific disapproval of this step, that is, the scientific methodology does not permit the step from these premises to that conclusion, that might be a, a consideration of methodology. But the district court did not say that and could not say that because there was no record made that suggested that this was not permissible. That's fine. That, yeah. that shows that the district court was relying on relevance rather than methodology. No, the, the district court was relying on sufficiency. The district court was saying, you can put your evidence on, but I don't believe it. Well, do you, well, do you, agree, that the, do you agree that the district court 
uh, must inquire both as to the adequacy, the soundness of the methodology, its predictability, and the relation of that methodology to the issues before the jury. Yes. All right. And the experts have to show that link by their studies, do they not? Yes. And isn't all the district judge did here was to find that there was no link? Well, the district court said there is no link, yes. But the district court And that's not. within the purview of the district of the district court, if the district court is, 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 is correct, if he, if he abuses his discretion or her discretion, uh, then we reverse. But that's within the discretion of the trial court, is it not? No, that is where we would disagree, Your Honor, and that is where the Court of Appeals disagreed. The Court of Appeals said, as Daubert makes clear, the district court may not decide whether the experts' opinions are correct, but merely whether the bases supporting the conclusion are reliable. Mr. Gannisman, it seems to me that, that maybe the methodology prong is just a red herring, but if the weight of the evidence is an accepted methodology, it would always be past that threshold if the expert just said, I considered everything that came to this conclusion. Well, I, we believe, Your Honor, that it can be encompassed within the methodology inquiry for the defendant to come forward with scientific evidence that says you can't get from A to B. Not just that I, the competing scientist, disagree, because scientists disagree all the time, but that the range of permissible scientific methodology, that which is regarded as good science, does not allow you to go from a But is there really much difference between the first and second position that you just discussed? Yes, and let me give you one very good example of that. They point in their reply brief to the, the testimony of some of their witnesses, none of whom addressed the plaintiff's witness's testimony, and say, see, this shows your methodology is bad. And they, several of the examples on page 12 of their reply brief are the testimony of Dr. Waddell at deposition. Dr. Waddell was asked at that definition with respect to the very testimony they're citing. Is the view that you're stating here widely accepted in the scientific community? This is on page 269 of the Joint Appendix. And his response was, there are a number of senior scientists who see it the same way I do. They probably number-wise are in the minority. Now, that's their testimony. The view I'm expressing here is probably in the minority. That's what they're citing to show that our scientists were not following the scientific method. Thank you, Mr. Gottesman. Mr. Cuny, you have three minutes remaining. Would you mind telling us if there's something left here to be tried when it goes back and whether the district court has to then make a determination whether to admit expert testimony if it is found that furons and dioxides were part of the exposure? Uh, yes, Justice O'Connor. I believe it is technically correct that in the motion for summary judgment, the only argument defendants put forward about furans and dioxins was that there had been no exposure. So the district judge was not asked to rule upon whether opinions that accepted that exposure could meet the scientific requirements of Rule 702. So that issue is left before the district court. And then if there is a trial, if the district court decides that there are admissible opinions that go to that point, it will be a very different trial than would otherwise take place because the plaintiffs would essentially have to win in front of the fact finder the furan and dioxin exposure point where the case would be over. And then are we, we're supposed to assume for argument's sake that there is an admissible, because one of the points you raised is that the Court of Appeals is wrong 
on its furans point, there isn't any evidence here that that uh, there were furans and dioxins. And, and we're supposed to assume for purposes of this case that the Court of Appeals is right on that point. So the bottom line, in, in your opinion, is we assume they're right, we remand to the Court of Appeals, and we ask the Court of Appeals to remand to the District Court for uh, consideration of furans and dioxins. Is that the bottom line? That's correct. You, you could ins- instruct the Court of Appeals that under an abuse of discretion standard, which it should have applied, the district court's exclusion of the PCB opinions was clearly within the district court's discretion. And so there's a reversal, and that, that opinion of the district court ought to be reinstated. Since we did not technically challenge the furans and dioxins exposure point, that would still be a matter appropriate for I, I didn't see any evidence here on furans and dioxins well, on either side, the, except the, whether they were there. The, the, the complication, Justice Breyer, is that the opinions of the experts in fact, were necessary to the conclusions about whether there was exposure to furans and dioxins. Mm -hmm. That's part of what really was left up for grabs when and if the parties returned to the district court. I see. Uh, Let me just address a couple of points very briefly. First, the notion that we need a modified standard of review to tell courts of appeals when to pay attention. I believe it does convey the suggestion that somehow under normal abuse of discretion, courts of appeals are not doing their job. Uh, we already have Federal Rule of Evidence 103, which in effect says that there are certain evidentiary rulings that don't have a, an impact on a substantial right of the parties, and those ought not be the grounds for error. It seems that that's sufficient, and that what this Court does not want to do uh, is endorse the notion of the Court of Appeals that some kind of extra language or extra message needs to be given to Courts of Appeals in this area. You can sit, this court considered really a very similar suggestion. Thank you, Mr. Cooney. Thank you, Your Honor. The case is submitted.